Mark Zuckerberg told The New Yorker the news source he definitely follows is TechMeme. So listen to the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast, the podcast anyone who's anyone in Silicon Valley listens to every day. In just 15 to 20 minutes, you get a rundown of what happened in the world of tech with all the headlines, context, commentaries, and tweets from all the biggest players. New episodes every day at 5 p.m. Eastern. Search your favorite podcast app for Ride Home and subscribe to the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast. Tired of spending hundreds of dollars for prescription glasses? Zenni offers thousands of affordable eyewear styles, starting at just $6.95. No ridiculous markups, no hassles, just quality, affordable eyewear delivered right to you. Visit Zenni today at zenni.com slash CNN. Good evening. As White House ceremonies go, hosting a championship sports team normally ranks right up there in difficulty with the annual Easter egg roll. It's not a heavy lift. In fact, even presidents embroiled in controversy have welcomed athletes to the White House, even when some of their teammates very publicly chose to stay away. It's an easy way to look gracious, to bask in a little reflected glory and reach people who happen to be fans of whatever team you're posing for photos with that day. Today, though, after canceling an appearance with the Super Bowl champion Philadelphia Eagles and spreading falsehoods about the reasons why, the president instead hosted what was billed as a celebration of America, in which the national anthem would be proudly played and sung. In addition to singing it, the president also talked about how much he respected the national anthem and by unspoken comparison, how little the Philadelphia Eagles allegedly do. Last night in canceling the team visit, the president said, quote, they disagree with their president because he insists they proudly stand for the national anthem, hand on heart in honor of the great men and women of our military and the people of our country. Now, keep it honest, the fact is that during the regular season last year, not one Eagle took a knee during the anthem. One player did in the preseason, but was cut before the regular season began. Some players did raise a fist. The president later sent a tweet implying that members of the Super Bowl winning Eagles stayed in the locker room during the anthem. Staying in the locker room for the playing of our national anthem is as disrespectful to our country as kneeling. Sorry. Well, keep it honest, that's also not true. They didn't stay in the locker room. When it became abundantly clear that the event had been canceled more for lack of eagles than anything else, Press Secretary Sarah Sanders then tried a little gaslighting, saying, quote, the vast majority of the Eagles team decided to abandon their fans. Now, it's hard to find a team more loyal to its fans and vice versa in good times or bad. Notwithstanding insinuations from the White House, the ties run deep. Then late today, yet another line came from the White House. Look, if this wasn't a political stunt by the Eagles franchise, then they wouldn't have planned to attend the event and then backed out at the last minute. And if it wasn't a political stunt, then they wouldn't have attempted to reschedule the visit uh, when they knew that the president was going to be overseas. And if this wasn't a political stunt, they wouldn't have waited until Monday, well after a thousand of their fans had traveled and taken time out of their schedules to offer only a tiny handful of representatives to attend the event. A political stunt, she says. Now, it certainly is a fact that some players disagree politically with the president on race, gender issues, on many things. One eagle today telling Jake Tapper, quote, reasons vary from player to player because the president gives people so many reasons not to want to go. Lots of guys who are white and even conservative balked at the possibility of going. And it's a view other players in other leagues certainly share. Here's LeBron James today, who's currently playing the NBA championship series against the Golden State Warriors. I know no matter who wins this series, no one's... No one wants to invite anyway, so it won't be Golden State or Cleveland going. So a political statement on the part of many Eagles? Sure. 
political stunt, though? A stunt like the vice president traveling at taxpayer expense to a Colts 49ers game last season, only to very publicly walk out when a number of San Francisco players took a knee, which everyone knew they would. It sounds like the White House doth protest too much on the stunt front, especially when the president seems to relish any chance he gets to attack players on this issue. When you go down and take a knee or any other way, you're sitting, essentially, for our great national anthem. You're disrespecting our flag and you're disrespecting our country. Before watching a football game, you want to see those players be proud of their country, respect our country, respect our flag, and respect our national anthem. You cannot have people disrespecting our national anthem, our flag, our country, and that's what they're doing. And in my opinion, the NFL has to change. Or you know what's going to happen? Their business is going to go to hell. Wouldn't you love to see one of these NFL owners when somebody disrespects our flag, to say, get that son of a bitch off the field right now, out, he's fired. He's fired! You have to stand proudly for the national anthem. Well, you shouldn't be playing, you shouldn't be there. Maybe you shouldn't be in the country. Well, as you can see, the president has been returning to this issue again and again, which may be a genuine reflection of his belief in the importance of this issue, or may in itself be the biggest stunt of all. More now from our CNN's Jim Acosta, who is at today's White House event. So, I mean, is there a political strategy behind all of this on the president's part? Uh, yes, Anderson, I think that is, uh, that, that is what's going on here. And I think the penalty flag should be f- uh, thrown here for untruthful-like conduct on the part of the White House. The only political stunt being uh, staged here was by the White House. They had this Celebration for America event, which, by the way, we should point out, only lasted about 10 or 15 minutes. And, yes, there were Eagles fans in attendance, but also plenty of uh, White House and administration officials. I counted two cabinet secretaries and the vice president all at this event today. Uh, but, yes, Anderson, I, I've talked to several sources and my colleagues here have talked to several sources who say that the president plans on making the NFL and patriotism an issue throughout the uh, midterms of the of the 2018 midterm campaign, essentially because they believe it just drives up the base and gets them out to vote. And so, you know, in the words of this one source uh, close to the White House that I spoke with earlier today, the NFL has a long way to go to get off the president's radar screen. And, and Sir Sanders was pressed today about whether or not the president is aware of what the protests are really about. She didn't answer the question, though, right? No, she didn't answer the question. Our, our friend uh, and colleague April Ryan asked that question at the briefing today, tried to, you know, desperately uh, ask that question at the end of the briefing. Sarah Sanders almost wouldn't take the question. Uh, and April Ryan reminded Sarah that uh, these players who were out there occasionally protesting and kneeling during the national anthem, that they're protesting against police brutality. But Anderson, one thing that we have to point out to our viewers, and we can't point it out enough, none of the Philadelphia Eagles players during the regular season or postseason uh, took a knee during the national anthem. They simply didn't do it. And so for the president to lump those players in with other players who did this or have done this over the last couple of years uh, is the height of untruthful like conduct and the penalty flag should be thrown. Andrew Costum, thanks very much. Conservative commentator Paris Denard joins us now. So does former Democratic mayor of Philadelphia, Michael Nutter. Uh, mayor Nutter, was this a, a, a political stunt by the Eagles? No, Anderson. <laughs> the president is the one who canceled the event Uh, on the false premise of some dispute uh, about the national anthem or kneeling or anything. And as uh, Jim Acosta has said, and everyone has said all day for the last day and a half, none of the Eagles ever did anything like that. They never stayed in the locker room. There have been no games uh, since the Super Bowl, so there's been none of this kind of activity. This was planned, I believe, a long time ago. Uh, Donald Trump uh, relishes... 
uh, this uh, reality-like uh, uh, TV world that he uh, lives in uh, all by himself uh, and knew that he would get much more mileage out of this uh, by canceling or disinviting uh, the Eagles than by actually being a normal person and actually having a ceremony with whomever uh, showed up. The fans would have been thrilled about that, and it would have been business as usual. But no, of course, he has to drive attention to himself, to his narcissism. He's an emotional and intellectual uh, Lilliputian, uh, and so he cannot think beyond uh, the moment. He doesn't care okay. what the real underlying issues are and what the players are actually demonstrating about. Paris? That's something he could actually do something about. Paris, I mean, you heard Jim Acosta uh, reporting that this is an issue the president views as something that could help him in the midterms. Isn't that a kind of political stunt? Well, I think that the president uh, believes in patriotism. He believes that this is an issue that... So do the Eagles. This is an issue that the president believes a lot of Americans care about. And I think the president is right for raising this cultural... uh, What issue? This cultural issue of what we do as Americans. Look, we've taken prayer out of schools. A lot of schools, when I grew up, we used to say the Pledge of Allegiance every morning. I did it because I was student body president. I would lead it for the class. We used to do things like that. And I think that what we've seen is the erosion of civility and the erosion of civics that is not prevalent. Look, there's a lot Wait wait, wait a minute, Paris. I mean, uh, I just got to, I got to jump in there. The, The erosion of civility. I mean, the president called these players sons of bitches. I mean, is that... Appropriate. Right. And, and I have said, and I mean, I know you all like to keep running that line, and I've said repeatedly that I didn't think that that was an appropriate thing for him to say, but I stand by the president. I was at the event today. I went to the event because I thought, you know, Mayor, I didn't interrupt you, and I think you should have some civility and allow me to finish what I'm saying. I went to the event because I thought it was an important right. thing to do because I stand uh, for the national anthem and for, uh, for, for, for this country. And I think it's an important thing to do. The NFL's policy is an important one to do. But I think overall, this is a logistical issue. It's a, it takes a lot of planning. The White House is planning this since February. Um, and I know that if the players decided at the last minute, which is what it seems, to on one day, Friday, 80 some odd people were coming. And then right before the event, they call and let them know that, well, not all those people are coming. It's going to be a very small amount of coming. So what's wrong with having a small amount? What's wrong with having a small amount coming to Mayor Nutter's position? I mean, if if it's to honor the team and there's a number of players there, I mean, it does seem like it's maybe about either the president trying to gin this up or also about his ego being upset that more players weren't coming, that it wasn't going to be a big enough event for him. Yeah. One thing I know about uh, team sports is that when you are on a team, you go as a team. You don't have the luxury of saying, oh, I don't want to play for that. I don't want to go to play that team because I don't like the quarterback. So half of the team team decides to go. And the one thing about team sports and being on a team, you do things together. And this was an invitation from the White House, which is traditionally done. And they they should go as a team. If one or two wasn't able to go two, three or four. That happened in past administrations. I know because it happened so, while I worked there okay. for President Bush. But this What's is different. Line? And it felt like a political stunt. And the president said, if you don't want to be here, if you all don't want to come, you originally come did, on. then you know, fine. Look, we'll salute the flag the and we'll have stunt, an event and The only stunt was the, the canceling of the event. That was no, the, the stunt, Paris. No, the stunt was saying that you come wanted on. to go and then clearing 80 some odd people. Said? 
the Philadelphia, so what? the Eagles. So what? if 10 players went, you have the event. Every event is not going to be the biggest event that ever happened in your life. This is well, back to crowd size well, and the, so, and the so inauguration. Let the mayor finish. Let the mayor finish. Let me explain no, let the mayor finish. You, ten players, oh, now I need um, to let the mayor finish. Well, no, it. you let just spoke for a long time. Come. Now he gets to speak, and then you'll get to speak again. That's how it works let in TV. Let whomever comes nah, not on this attend, show. celebrate with them, don't disrespect the fans, don't make a political statement, and move on with your life. So uh, let me. The, everything okay. that you said had nothing to do with today's event. We're not talking about Pledge of Allegiance in the classroom and civics class. This was a bald-faced political stunt. By the, the president Eagles. has continued to ignore the underlying real issues about inequality, racism, police brutality, bad relations between police and community, community and police. Why and does he that, have a meeting so, about that? He okay. could have had a small event with the 10 players, invited them to sit around the table and have a serious discussion about serious policy. But he doesn't care about that. Well, that's he cares about true. himself. I think that's not true. And I think when you okay. saw what the president did with prison reform and how he invited a series of people and at the last minute, a very high profile rapper was pressured in not going because he felt that that wasn't going to be good for his brand when they could have done Paris. something. I think that's what we saw here. <laughs> let me, the let Eagles me were coming really? to this event. Because you they actually know what Donald Paris, Trump thinks. Paris, let, me, let me ask you. Sir Sanders was asked today about how this compares to the Supreme Court ruling yesterday in favor of the baker who turned away a gay couple, which the White House came out in favor of. Uh, I just want to play what, what she said. If the White House supports the baker's right of free speech, why doesn't the White House support the player's right to free speech? Uh, the president doesn't think that this is an issue simply of free speech. He thinks it's about respecting uh, the men and women of our military. It's about respecting our national anthem. And it's about standing out of pride for that. I mean, Paris, isn't I mean, what she's saying is the president doesn't believe this is an issue of free speech. And then she went on to describe, I mean, she may not like this free speech, but is this not an issue of free speech? Well, I think that those two issues are totally separate. One dealt with a religious, uh, someone's faith and, 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 and working out of their faith tradition. And, and this is dealing with... Right, but I'm uh, asking you, do you believe and, the players, I mean, don't they have a right to free speech? Well, I mean, everybody has a right to free speech, but it, it has its limits, Anderson, because listen, if your employer says, you know, if CNN says, Anderson, there are certain words you cannot say on the air, while you, have, while you do have a right to say them, you can't say them. And if you do say them, you run the risk of being fired or you can go to another network or another organization that allows you to say it. So with, there are limitations. The NFL has said that if you are going to be on the on the field, you've got you're going to stand for the Pledge of Allegiance right. or the, the, the Eagles National always anthem. stood, Paris. And, the and Eagles that, okay. always stood. That's they were not never the point, in the locker Mayor, room. We're not and they don't about work that. for Donald Trump, Paris. They work for they the don't NFL. Work for Donald Trump. And the NFL put in something in place. And so while they do that's have for next freedom, season. And why they have season. and why they have freedom of speech? That is for next while season. They, Pay attention. But is, so Anderson, isn't so not, you're going to let him do that? It isn't not uh, Paris. Isn't not choosing to come to the White House an expression of free speech? The, yes, and, and it is an expression of free speech. And I think that the White House Bingo. should reconsider how they do this. I would not extend invitations to, to teams. If teams want to come to the White House, they should a- a- ask to come, and there should be a guarantee that the team 
is going to come. The team is everybody that's on the field. You win together, you fight together, you play together. And when you go to go celebrate, you celebrate okay. together. And I think that that's how it should be done. So Mayor, what, if two Mayor, people don't go, the whole team doesn't go? Mayor Nutter, do you see uh, uh, I mean, uh, a racial component yeah, in this? Sure. Obviously, a lot of people have, have brought this up when the president you know, called players sons of bitches. Um, yep. And and you know whether this is about ginning up the base, you know, Paris said it, it, it appeals to certainly president supporters. I, I'm paraphrasing. Um, do you do you believe that there is a racial component to this? Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is the biggest dog whistle. I mean, you know, anybody could hear this whistle uh, from miles away. This is all about uh, again pushing aside of the real issues uh, that are at hand. Uh, you know, I mean, I won't say the word. You did. Uh, 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 but, uh, you know, SOBs, I mean, you're I mean, you've just gone down a, a rabbit hole that uh, any righteous uh, man and certainly any righteous black man is going to be fighting with you all day long if you talk about his mother like that. So, oh, uh, there's absolutely a racial component. I want you to have the final thought, the final comment. Absolutely a racial component. And that is what Donald Trump is really all about. All right. Paris. This is this is not a racial issue. We're looking for a racial issue. Um, and I don't think that this what this is one. This is okay. an issue about patriotism. This is the issue about uh, what the White House logistically decided not to do when it came to That's having this event right. because the players decided not to come and be there for the thousands of fans who wanted to be there to support the Paris, team. Denard, I appreciate it. Mayor Nutter as well. Coming up next, why the White House can't seem to admit that a key statement about the Russia affair was false, even after a newly released letter shows the, uh, the released by the president's own uh, attorney to Robert Mueller. We're keeping him honest on that. And later, the stunning news about designer Kate Spade, who has died apparently by suicide. We'll tell you what police here in New York have found so far. Tired of spending hundreds of dollars for prescription glasses? Our friends at Zenni Optical offer a huge variety of high-quality, stylish frames and state-of-the-art optics starting at just $6.95. You can get multiple frames with this great pricing for less than one pair elsewhere. Start building your eyewear wardrobe from the comfort of your own home at Zenni.com. With the latest trends in eyewear, available in hundreds of frame styles and materials, there isn't a better way to change it up for every season. Plus, Zenni offers prescription sunglasses at incredible prices. Visit Zenny today at zenny.com slash CNN. That's Z-E-N-N-I dot com slash CNN. Days after a key White House talking point on Russia was revealed to be a widely repeated falsehood, a new line emerged from one of the president's attorneys and one of the perpetrators of that falsehood again stonewalled on the issue. It's a falsehood on top of another falsehood, namely that President Trump had nothing, or as the line later went, had very little to do with drafting of the false statement about what transpired at the meeting between his son, son-in-law, and campaign manager and the Russians. Now, just to refresh your memory, here's Jay Sekulow, one of the president's attorneys, followed by Sarah Sanders, with what we'll call narrative number one. And this is what they were claiming last July and August, that the president did not write or dictate the statement about the meeting on Air Force One. That was written, well, no, that was written by Donald Trump Jr. and, and I'm sure with, in consultation with his lawyer. So that wasn't written by the president. The president didn't sign off on, on anything. He was coming back from the G20. The, the statement that was released on Saturday was released by Donald Trump Jr., and I'm sure in consultation with his lawyers. The president wasn't involved in that. The president was not, did not draft the response. The response and, and was, came from Donald Trump Jr., and I'm sure in consultation with his lawyer. Let me say this. Uh, the president, but I do want to be clear, the president was not involved in the drafting of the statement and did not issue the statement. It came from uh, Donald Trump Jr., he certainly didn't dictate, but, you know, he, like I said, he weighed in, offered suggestion like any father would do. 
So that was narrative number one, and it was false. We don't yet know if Sarah Sanders or Jay Sekulow knew it was false at the time or whether they were simply repeating someone else's falsehood. Were they lying or had they been given false information by the president or someone close to him? We do, however, know that another member of the president's legal team has his own theory, which we'll call now narrative number two, which he rolled out last night to Chris Cuomo. You, you think maybe somebody could have made a mistake? <laughs> right. That's a lot of mistakes. Why is it always... A lot of why, mistakes. Why is it always that somebody, you think Jay Sekulow lied? Maybe he just got it wrong. Like, like I've gotten, I got a few things wrong at the beginning of the investigation. Uh, meaning my knowledge, of this is a complex investigation. You can make a mistake. You can make a mistake. And then if you don't, if you don't, if you want to, you can say it's a lie. But it was a mistake. I, I swear to God, it was a mistake. The guy made a mistake and then he corrected it. Well, the way he says it, it almost sounds like a slip of the tongue. But if it was just a mistake, how come no one did correct it like he claimed? It's been nearly a year. And if it was just a mistake, how is Jay Sekulow and Sarah Sanders both making the same mistake? We just learned that Jay Sekulow wrote a letter to Robert Mueller back in January saying the president did dictate the response. He's had plenty of time to publicly correct his alleged mistake. Keep it honest, a key point of fact about a central question regarding potential collusion and obstruction isn't the sort of thing you get wrong because of some kind of snafu. Yesterday, Sarah Sanders refused to address the issue. Today, the stone wall got even higher. Once again, I'm not going to go into detail and go into a back and forth. So why can't you correct the record now? Again, I'm not going to answer questions that deal specifically with conversations between the outside counsel and the special counsel. Not to answer the question? Uh, again, I am not going to get into a back and forth with you on that, and I'd refer you to the outside counsel. Was your statement accurate or inaccurate? Uh, again, I know you want to get me into a back and forth with you on this conversation. Well, back and forth. You said something. We just want to know if it was accurate or not. Was Look, I know your goal accurate? is to engage me in a conversation about matters dealing with the outside counsel, uh, and I'm not going to do that today. Well, narrative one, narrative two, and growing stonewalls, clearly a job for CNN chief legal analyst Jeffrey Tubin and former federal prosecutor Ann Milgram. So, Jeff, just explain the, why the, the continuing inconsistencies about the Air Force One statement legally are important. Right. I mean, the Air Force One statement is very important. It's not just some tangential issue where the White House got caught in a lie. It's central to the Mueller investigation, in part because it relates to making false statements lying about what went on in terms of what went on with Russia and the Trump campaign. It is evidence, not alone, it's not proof, but it is evidence of possible obstruction of justice, misleading investigators, misleading the public about what really happened. But even more important, why this statement is important, is that it suggests that the president knew that the relationship between the Trump campaign and Russia was wrong, was corrupt. So he lied about it. It shows consciousness of guilt. You know, he's, well, and while uh, that's while he was president, correct. And and he's and, and you know one of the things you know he said all along is that there was no collusion, and even if there was any relationship, it was perfectly legal. Well, if he thought the relationship was perfectly appropriate, why was he lying about what went on at Trump Tower? And and I mean, obstruction of justice doesn't have to be successful to be a crime. That's right. I mean, it, it can be an attempt. To there doesn't even to, have to be an underlying crime. Right. That's right. That's right. You can obstruct. You can obstruct justice, even though there turns out not to be a crime there. Um, and here, I think Jeff is completely right. This is what they're investigating. They're looking at what the president did. It's not just Donald Trump Jr. It's also what the president did and what he said. And of course, I think if if there's nothing to hide, you would tell the truth about this kind of a meeting.
And, and we know, I mean, Mueller has interviewed basically everybody who was in that, uh, around that. That's in the another plan. piece of this. And that's why, it seems, the White House had to change its story. Hope Hicks is a central figure in all of this. She was intimately involved. Right. She in refused House. to talk to Congress about it, but we don't know what she told Mueller. Right. She did talk to Mueller. And undoubtedly, she told the White House what she told Mueller. She... It, it, she knew what really went on with how this statement was drafted. And b- after she spoke to Mueller, the White House changed its story. Because they can't really claim that Hope Hicks was lying about all this. That, that would be really too improbable. Let's talk about Ma- Manafort. Uh, and, I mean, he, he, he hasn't flipped. Uh, there's possible imminent incarceration because Mueller is alleging that he's basically violated his the terms of, of his parole. Presumably... Uh, I mean, his spokesman says he's innocent. Presumably, Mueller still wants to use him for some sort of leverage. Or we don't, do we not, we don't know. I mean, I think they could be connected, but I suspect they're actually probably right now two separate things. You have an individual who's been charged with a crime who we know once already was trying to publish an op-ed, get someone to publish a pro, um, an op-ed in his favor with, with the Ukrainian government. Then you have the second instance, which is even more significant, where we have what appears to be evidence from two people that he was trying to tamper with these witnesses by saying to them, here's what you should be saying, essentially. And so that's very significant. When you are released from a judge on bail, he's out on $10 million bail, one of the conditions is that you not commit any other crimes. And so that is incredibly important. The second piece, which is connected, is that if the judge holds him in, it is a lever. It is much more pressure on him to plead guilty, to cooperate with Mueller. Um, I do think those are two separate things that right now the special counsel is just focused I, on. He's I, tampering with witnesses. I'm sorry. I'm I, I was shocked by how meek the Mueller investigation, the Mueller team's response was. They filed this motion that said, well, you should uh, in, you should revoke his bail or at least revisit the issue. Why didn't they tell him to lock him up right away? I mean, this guy barely got on out on bail at all. This He has lots of mud, lots of money, a motive to leave. He had three passports, ties around the world. So the judge decides this. Well, the judge decides this, and the judge has put this on a pretty slow track. I mean, the the judge has said, well, let me hear from Mueller's uh, lawyers on Monday, and we'll have a hearing next Friday, you know, about 10 days away. You know, if if you're the Mueller team, you should be screaming and yelling, this guy got a sweet deal, and then he and then he broke it. I mean, they should be saying he should be locked up today. I mean, the, the, the chutzpah of violating the terms of your parole in a federal case, I mean, it's pretty extraordinary. I mean, he was in a lot of trouble before this. It is pretty this. extraordinary. I mean, I've done state, local, and federal prosecutions, and, you know, particularly you do see obstruction cases, but you don't see this generally where somebody's already been charged with a crime, they've been before a judge, they've got a lawyer who's clearly going to tell them, look, don't talk to anybody, don't try to influence anybody, and then he goes and does it. It's and, stunning. And he's using, you know, a special sort of coded um, email, try, not like a regular email, so that he showing he knows he yeah. shouldn't be doing this. Uh, Jeff Tubin and Milgram, thanks very much. Uh, uh, breaking news tonight, new details about Secretary of Education uh, Betsy DeVos and what she said to a congressional committee about a new federal school safety commission. The commission was created in the wake of the Parkland sh- uh, school shooting. Seems it's missing a key component, however. Remember, to create an ad like this one, visit purewinning.com slash CNN. 
We have breaking news tonight in a pretty remarkable exchange at a Senate subcommittee hearing. Education Secretary Betsy DeVos says looking at the role of guns in school safety is not a focus of the new federal school safety commission uh, that was formed after the Valentine's Day shooting at Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. Now, you may remember when the commission was actually formed by the White House, one of its publicly declared areas of focus was according to the White House, quote, age restrictions for certain firearm purchases, unquote. Here's how it went with Senator Patrick Leahy of Vermont. Will your commission look at the role of firearms as it relates to gun violence in our schools? That is not part of the commission's charge, per se. I see. So, you, um, so you're studying gun violence but not considering the role of guns. We're actually it- studying school safety and how we can ensure our students are safe but, at well, school. Well, you might recall it was only a few days ago a child asked White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders a question about guns in schools, and she seemed to uh, be shaken up a bit. We recently had a lockdown room. One thing that affects mine and other students' mental health is to worry about, about the fact that we or our friends could get shot at school. Specifically, can you tell me what the administration has done and will do to prevent these senseless tragedies? I think that uh, as a kid and certainly as a parent, there is nothing that could be more terrifying for a kid to go to school and not feel safe. So I'm sorry that you feel that way. Uh, This administration takes it seriously. And the school safety commission that the president convened is meeting this week, again, an official meeting uh, to discuss the best ways forward and how we can do every single thing within our power to protect kids in our schools and to make them feel safe and make their parents feel good about dropping them off. Well, just repeat what she said there. The commission is meeting to, quote, discuss the best ways forward and how we can do every single thing within our power to protect kids in our schools and to make them feel safe. Cameron Kowski is a survivor of the Stoneman Douglas shooting. I spoke to him just before our time. Cameron, when you hear Secretary DeVos's comments that the role of firearms as it relates to gun violence in our schools is not part of this commission's charge, I'm wondering what goes through your mind. Well, you know, Betsy is just about as fit to su- to run this committee as somebody in the public school she's failed is. She is a millionaire and another member of Trump's cabinet who bought their way in and has no idea what they're doing. And not addressing gun violence in schools, especially when the when it was created to after a horrible gun tragedy in a school, it makes you realize this is just another thing that these politicians who want to do nothing are using to get out of this with a clean slate. I mean, it's very clear. They are creating this school safety commission to look like they've done anything when the number one thing that is common in all school shootings is the fact that they're done by guns. So the fact that they won't even address the word gun, it's like the Stop School Violence Act. They didn't use the word gun a single time. When the White House announced this very commission back in March, they did list you know, several areas of focus, the first of which, first and foremost, was age restrictions for certain firearm purchases. Why do you think it's now shifted uh, where they're not going to even address that? It's just it's just like your typical Trump. He'll say anything at the time to get people to like him. And then once the time goes on and people care less and less as we move on, it's not we're going to get dismissed. So, sure, addressing things like age restrictions on the purchase of firearms looks good then. But now that it's now that a lot of people have forgotten about it, they don't want to do that. They're paid by the NRA. Do you worry about that? Do you worry about momentum being lost? I mean, obviously, uh, you know, there was the the march that that you and other students uh, organized. Do you worry that sort of people kind of have moved on? Well, 
the, one of the main things we're doing is go, going on tour this summer and bringing this to everybody in the country's backyard, saying, we come from a tragedy, we are here to tell you what is happening in this country, get you registered to vote, and get you ready for the midterm. So I'm, I'm not necessarily worried that the gun violence movement has lost any steam, because the truth is, gun violence will not stop until we do something about this. And that the reason that we're getting so many people registered to vote and the reason we're focusing so much on the importance of the midterm elections is the last midterms in 2014 had a lower turnout, had the lowest turnout since World War II. Right now, we're focused on getting the youth of America ignited, moving, and ready to get to the polls so we can have elected officials in office who will take steps to prevent gun violence, unlike people like the Secretary of Education, and make this not a problem anymore. I hope that 10 years down the line, the gun violence movement has lost steam because it doesn't exist anymore, because we have politicians who will put in laws that address the number one issue with gun violence, which is guns. Last week, Sarah Sanders was asked about school shootings from a a kid reporter at the White House briefing. She said this administration wants to, quote, do every single thing in their power to protect kids in schools. You, You clearly don't believe that. I think this administration wants to do every single thing in their power to avoid this, to sidestep this issue so they can focus on tearing more kids away from their families at the border. This administration does not care about gun violence. They certainly do not care about school safety. They are trying to get out of this with a clean slate, trying to appease whatever crowd they're in front of, and there are people in this country who will believe them. The thing is, the majority of the country understands that this is a whole bunch of garbage. The Stop School Violence Act is a bag of hot air that will do nothing to save anybody in any schools, and that That's why we are getting out and voting this midterms and every election ahead of us. We have taken the right to vote for granted, and we are making sure we are holding up our politicians accountable, not only by marching in the streets, but by marching into voting booths and hitting them where it hurts, which is their polls. Cameron Kasky, I appreciate your time. Thanks. Thank you very much. Up next, I'm going to talk live with former U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, Preet Bharara, about the man he prosecuted, who subsequently received a pardon from President Trump, conservative activist Dinesh D'Souza, and later the death of a design icon, Kate Spade, found in her New York City apartment. Authorities say it was an apparent suicide. I'm Andy Katz from March Madness 365, and on this edition of our show, I'll be joined by Syracuse's Tyus Battle. I've been just trying to improve all facets of my game, just being able to be more offensive, throwing the ball different ways, shooting the ball, I think that's improved, and uh, just my playmaking ability as well. Subscribe to March Madness 365 now at Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Last night in the broadcast, conservative commentator Janesh D'Souza said that his prosecution and subsequent guilty plea for campaign finance fraud was politically motivated, or at least his prosecution was, because he was a severe critic of the Obama administration. President Trump pardoned D'Souza last week. Here's part of what he said last night. I became suspicious that part of the reason I was being targeted was because I, um, I did something very upsetting to a very narcissistic president. Anderson, if this was a routine case, Preet Bharara was on CNN, my prosecutor, saying recently, oh, this was a garden variety case handled just like any other case. But why are my politics highlighted in my FBI file? My evidence is that the FBI is signaling to the Justice Department, look, we got one for you. Here's a prominent critic of Obama. You need to know that this is your political enemy. You may want to go after this guy. What I'm suggesting is that under Hillary and under Obama, we have basically seen this sort of a new phenomenon, the use of the weapons of the state against political adversaries. And my case is not unique in this. 
Well, D'Souza's prosecution, in fact, was led by Preet Brar, then the U.S. attorney for the Southern District. He joins me now. Uh, this notion that this was a selective prosecution, he really, he didn't argue that in court. He's arguing this in TV interviews. He doesn't really have any evidence other than what he says is a reference in an FBI file to the, his opposition to the Obama administration. Uh, I mean, what did President Obama or Attorney General Eric Holder <laughs> get tipped off by the FBI about his political beliefs and sick you on him? Uh, no. Um, look, he's got an axe to grind. He's upset that he was prosecuted. Most people who get prosecuted are upset. We have a sitting president who's being investigated, who's upset he's being investigated. It happens all the time to prosecutors in every district uh, from time immemorial. The fact of the matter is there was a garden variety crime that he committed, not the crime of the century, but one in, that we prosecuted before. We prosecuted a lot more Democrats. than For this crime. For this crime, for, 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 for paying, for having a straw purchaser donate to a political campaign. And right. overall... He, he didn't just over-donate himself. He convinced no, some he, friends of his to donate and then that he would immediately pay them yeah, back. He, he, he set tried, up he tried, he tried to evade the campaign finance laws that have limits to make sure that the integrity of the election process is, is you know, controlled uh, and then offered to repay them. And he did it over time. He did it multiple times. Again, not the crime of the century, but a crime that was, that was uncovered by... You know, routine analysis of these things, like we did in other cases, including with respect to Democrats. And you have no choice but to prosecute such a case. And other people have been charged with the same felony. With respect to the accusation, which I, I barely want to dignify, that somehow, because he makes films that are critical of people, including the, the former president of the United States, that, as he says it, uh, they sick their dogs, refer to me and Eric Holder as President Obama's dogs on him. Nothing could be further from the truth. I never had a conversation of any sort with the, with the former president of the United States. Uh, Barack Obama never called me about a case, never would think of calling me about a case. You know who called me three times? President Trump called me three times. And the last time he called me, I refer, refused to turn, return the call. Um, and I was asked to step down the next day. Um, nobody in Washington told us to bring a case or not bring a case. We did what we normally do in all of these situations. Career prosecutors and agents made a recommendation to bring a particular charge, and that charge was brought. This issue of whether or not there was selective prosecution he didn't use it to try to dismiss his indictment, and the judge made that clear. But it was talked about and litigated in the district court. And the district court judge, who's very respected, said it's all hat, no cattle. There's no basis for it. Right. He pled guilty. He admitted he was guilty. Uh, he said he regretted his action. The judge found no selective prosecution. He also said and, he and knew he, it was uh, illegal at the time what he was doing. He said he didn't know it was a federal offense, but he knew it was wrong. His lawyer, Ben Brafman, who is one of the great defense lawyers in right. the country today, represents other people, including Harvey Weinstein at the time, is no slouch, literally said in court, we have no legal defense to this crime. Why do you think he was pardoned? You know, I don't know. Um, you know... Uh, the other thing that it's important to, to understand is that is that Mr. D'Souza didn't get jail time. He got pro, he got probation. Right. And so it, I'm not sure what wrong was being remedied. I don't know how Donald Trump makes his decisions about pardons. It seems to be there's a political aspect to it. And so uh, you know, the, the reason you have a system and you have a pardon attorney uh, and the way that most pardons have been granted over time and some people have not agreed with them. And I think Bill Clinton issued a terrible pardon that my office sought to investigate with respect to Mark. Rich. Rich. So there are bad pardons on all sides. Uh, I don't know why Donald Trump does what he does, but it sounds like he didn't re read any documents. He didn't consult with anybody at the Justice Department. He decided to pardon to please his political base. Um, I want to ask you about this new filing from Robert Mueller saying that Paul Manafort was, uh, was witness tampering in connection with the case. A, do you think he should, his bail should be revoked? And he yes. should, right? Are you, yeah. And are you surprised that 
I mean, Jeff Dubin was on before and Ann Milgram saying it's moving very slowly, uh, yeah, that you know, decision. So, so Jeff and I talked earlier. I saw him in the building earlier today, and I said to him that, that and I don't know, and I think they're, they're very competent attorneys and they're pretty aggressive folks. Um, I'm a little bit surprised they didn't ask straight away for him to be, uh, for his bail to be revoked. And they suggested in their court papers today that I read, either bail revoked or revised in some way. It seems to be an egregious violation. I think he's, I think Paul Panafort has bought himself a lot of trouble. A, he might have his bail revoked. B, um, I think it's possible that they'll bring additional charges under 18 U.S.C. 1512, which is the obstruction statute that they referred to in the papers. And then C, there's a decent chance that this evidence is going to come in at the underlying trial to show that he was conscious of that what he was doing was wrong. I am surprised, as you asked, why the hearing on this is going to take place 11 days from now as opposed to sooner. Maybe they're, you know, the judge is bending over backwards to try to give the defense a chance to respond to the allegations. But if you read the documents, the allegations seem very strong. Yeah. Uh, Pre-pro. Appreciate it. Thanks Thank very you. much. When we come back, EPA Chief Scott Pruitt is in trouble once again for yet another alleged ethics violation. This time it's in connection to uh, Chick-fil-A. We'll explain how. And the later, designer Kate Spade dead apparently by suicide in New York. What police are saying, and a look back at her life and fashion legacy. Hey, it's Howard Beck, and I've got former NBA champion and current Yes analyst Richard Jefferson on Bleacher Report's The Full 48. For me, winning the championship just validated, you know, me from a standpoint of like, all I ever wanted to do was win. All I ever wanted to do was win on a high, high level. And so to get that, then it just made everything feel like it was worth it. The Full 48 is now available on Spotify. And of course, you can always listen and subscribe on the Bleacher Report app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Well, the Washington Post is reporting tonight that EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt, three months into his new job, had a member of his staff email the head of the fast food chain Chick-fil-A asking for a meeting uh, with Pruitt about a potential business opportunity. The idea, according to the Post, was for Pruitt's wife to operate one of the restaurant's franchises. Meantime, Iowa Republican Senator Joni Ernst is calling Pruitt, quote, as swampy as you get, unquote, because of the laundry list of his alleged misuse of agency funds. Josh Dawsey broke the latest story in the Washington Post. Ask Sarah Sanders about it today. The administrator, Scott Pruitt, um, asking a we reported today to help his wife get a Chick-fil-A franchise. Uh, does the president think that's ethical behavior? I haven't spoken with the president about that since that report came out. How is it that President Trump continues to have confidence in the EPA administrator, assuming that he still does? Uh, once again, I haven't uh, had a chance to speak with the president directly about the Washington Post's new report. We continue to have concerns and look into those and we'll address them. Well, not exactly a full-throated endorsement from the White House Press Secretary. Josh Dawsey joins me. So, Josh, this communication between uh, Chick-fil-A and Pruitt, explain how it played out. Sure. So Scott Pruitt wanted his wife to have employment in Washington, and he asked a senior aide at the EPA, obviously he's the administrator, uh, to make an introduction to the CEO of Chick-fil-A. Uh, and in the goal of doing this introduction uh, was a subsequent meeting where a potential franchise could be discussed, uh, where Marlon Pruitt, Scott Pruitt's wife, could become a franchise owner of Chick-fil-A. That obviously was problematic, according to ethics experts and a lot of folks who watch a government, because you're asking a government official to help, uh, you know, make private uh, fortune for, uh, uh, you know, a wife of an administrator. Right. I mean, there, there are ethics laws which say that a cabinet level official uh, cannot do something or ask a, 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 an right. underling, an aide to do something that benefits them financially, correct? 
Correct. And, you know, it's several layers of uh, issues there. A, it's he's asking, you know, a scheduler uh, on government time uh, to set up the meeting. Uh, he is going into the meeting uh, as EPA administrator, but also discussing private business. Whatever gain she could have gotten from this would be imputed to him, obviously. Uh, and it's it's murky in several ways because he, you know, is essentially uh, looking for his wife to make money and using uh, his government powers, his government time, his government aids to try and make that happen. Right. It's also interesting because according to your reporting, it's not like he just called up, you know, Chick-fil-A and said, hey, you know, can you send me some information? For, uh, I'm interested in my wife getting a uh, or doing a franchise or applying for a franchise. I mean, he basically was, was wanting direct communication with the CEO of the company, not saying what the purpose of it was, kind of using his office in order to get direct contact. Just saying a business opportunity, not asking specifically why uh, he would be meeting with the Chick-fil-A CEO, uh, you know, and then setting up the meeting. And a Chick-fil-A the CEO and a lawyer came and met with Scott Pruitt. Uh, eventually, the franchise opportunity did not come through for Marlon Pruitt, his wife, but it went through several layers. She even began filling out an application. And uh, surprisingly, Anderson, or at least this was surprising to me, uh, these are very competitive to get. There are thousands of people who ask for them every year, and uh, only a few dozen often get uh, the these uh, franchise applications accepted. So this was a, a perk that he was trying to get for her that you can't just get as a normal person, you know, unless you're particularly qualified or have some connections. Pruitt didn't stop, though, at Chick-fil-A. He also approached the CEO of Concordia, which is a nonprofit organization uh, that I understand, according to your reporting, that, that he was actually going to be speaking at. Right. And he got it so that his wife would uh, do some, uh, what, like, event planning for the actual event where he was speaking? Yeah, he was going to be speaking at a conference, and while he was there, he also secured a contract for his wife to do some unspecified event planning task for the conference. It's unclear what she did, but unlike the Chick-fil-A deal, this actually went through, and she was actually paid for this, and, you know, that, that was described to us on the record today by the Concordia official. Josh, thanks very much. Thanks for having me. I want to check in with Chris to see what's ahead at the top of uh, the hour in Cuomo prime time. Chris? What is that, like the 13th open investigation of Pruitt and he's still on there? I mean, it really does make you think that the White House just won't let him go because maybe they see him as one too many. Mm. We're going to take that on. We have Anthony Scaramucci here now. As everybody remembers, he was an early architect of the communication strategy for the White House. And he actually had very different ideas than they're employing right now, right? Be open, put the president out there, do more media. How does he see the president disinviting the Eagles. What does he think it's really about? And what does he think about the White House and its relationship with abuse of truth? We're going to talk politics with him. We're also going to talk policy. We've got Peter Navarro on, okay? He is the trade guru inside the White House. Why does he believe a two-front war with friends and foes is the right move for U.S. taxpayers? We'll take all that on. And we got a new segment you're going to love, Anderson. All right, 9 Why I am wrong. Oh, yeah? Mm. Mm. I'd like to see that. Uh, I know you will. <laughs> Chris, thanks very much. That's Bye, 9 p.m. Just ahead, uh, fashion designer Kate Spade has been found dead at 55. Apparent suicide. A note found at the scene referenced her, her husband, and daughter, according to New York police sources. What we know next. So many people around the world depend on CNN's quality reporting. And now they have an incredible online store with clothes, gear, and gadgets. Right now, you can get 15% off your purchase. Just visit store.cnn.com. And when you're checking out, enter the code CNN Podcast. Just one word and get a 15% discount. It's that simple. That's store.cnn.com.
On tragedy in New York today, where fashion designer Kate Spade was found dead of an apparent suicide this morning. New York police sources say Spade hanged herself and left a suicide note. She was just 55 years old. She had a husband and a daughter. Alex Marquardt reports. The 55-year-old's sudden death Tuesday came as a shock to countless fans around the world after Kate Spade's body was found Tuesday morning by her housekeeper in her apartment on Manhattan's Upper East Side. There was a uh, a suicide note left at the scene. I'm not going to get into the contents of that note. Spade had used a scarf to hang herself. Sources telling CNN that in her note, Spade addressed her 13-year-old daughter. We lost an incredible vision. We lost an incredible human being. We lost an incredible woman who really paved the way for all of these other designers to be able to do what they do. Spade was born Catherine Brosnahan in Kansas City, Missouri, the fifth of six children. I didn't grow up thinking, oh, I'm going to be a designer. She met future husband and business partner Andy Spade, the brother of comedian David Spade, at Arizona State University, where she majored in journalism. Hi, I'm Kate. She moved to New York and went to work for Mademoiselle magazine. I really did like fashion, and I really thought I was very innovative. So my mother was actually very good in encouraging me to dress however I wanted. She rose up to become senior fashion editor, but in 1992, Spade quit to launch her own handbag line. So Andy and I were out, honestly, at a Mexican restaurant, and... He just said, what about handbags? And I said, honey, you just don't start a handbag company. And he said, why not? How hard can it be? (laughs) At first, they sold just six styles of bags, soon expanding to include jewelry, shoes, and clothes for women who could often feel excluded by high-end fashion. What Kate did with her collection was so unfounded back then was she created this idea of needing an it bag, but at an accessible price point. In 2006, Kate and Andy Spade sold the last of their shares in the company, which was eventually resold last year for $2.4 billion. And Anderson, we are learning more about that suicide note that in addition to addressing her daughter, she also references her husband. That's according to an NYPD source to my colleague Bryn Gingrass. The Kate Spade Company tweeted out their condolences today saying, our thoughts are with her family at this incredibly heartbreaking time. We honor all the beauty she brought into this world. And Anderson tributes have also been pouring in from fans and celebrities alike, many of them talking about the very first Kate Spade bags that they got. Anderson. Alex, thanks very much. Uh, For anyone suffering out there, the number for the National uh, Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. They provide free confidential support to people in suicidal crisis or emotional distress. There is help out there. It's 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Again, 1-800-273-TALK. That's it for us. We'll be back at 11 Eastern. Full coverage of tonight's primaries right now. Time to uh, hand it over to Chris Cuomo. Cuomo Primetime starts now. Are you ready to learn how to build a better consulting or professional services company? Then download the Liston.io show for the best sales and marketing advice so you can deliver your services to the people who need you the most. On the show, I'll be interviewing the smartest people in the industry to share what they know about building a better consulting business. I'll also give you episodes where I tell you specifically how to sell your services with confidence and how to transform into an influential leader in your industry. Your happy clients probably want to help you. It's too hard for them right now. You're asking them to do too much of the selling that you should be doing. Yeah, it's going to move. It's going to change. It's going to disrupt you at some point in time. Your most loyal clients are your most profitable. 
Ready to learn how other people are building the consulting company you've always wanted? Download the Liston.io show, spelled L-I-S-T-O-N dot I-O, wherever you get your podcasts. Before you go, we wanted to let you know that we just launched the ability for anyone to advertise on CNN Podcasts. You're just a few clicks away from reaching millions of people in a way that you never have before. Advertise for a business event or kick off an awareness campaign for your brand. Start today at purewinning.com slash CNN. Integrating podcasts into your marketing mix has never been easier. Go to purewinning.com slash CNN to get started.